0: The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket presales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you.
1: Hello, everybody. This is The Glenn Show. I'm Glenn Lowry. I'm with my conversation partner, John McWhorter. Uh, We're Ivy League professors over here. I teach at Brown. He teaches at Columbia. He writes for The New York Times. I have a substack. And uh, I am uh, happy to report that the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research sponsors the Glenn Show and that additional support for the Glenn Show is provided by ACTA, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, particularly for the conversations that John and I are having. So we're here every other week. We're back. How are you doing, John? Good. Good. It's hot,
0: but very, very, very good. I think this is our affirmative action show, Glenn.
1: Last week, let me see. It was last week. This is right? uh, Saturday. so um, Two weeks ago. I, two weeks ago, yeah. It was yeah. a week before last, in effect. Uh, I was out in uh, Texas, at, at, uh, in Dallas, at the University of Austin's Forbidden Courses summer, uh, summer school. You know, two weeks of... Uh, lectures and seminars and whatnot on all manner of things that hosted by this new startup university that uh, I'm very excited about. But in any case, my uh, seminar was on race and inequality, and it happened on Thursday that the decision came down from the Supreme Court in the Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard and the University of North Carolina affirmative action case. And the banner headline that comes out of that is that affirmative action has been ended by the Supreme Court. This would appear to be very momentous. Uh, Gosh, we have to devote at least uh, one of our conversations to exploring the full implications of it, ramifications. And uh, it's an issue that we've been talking about here for years, John. Mm -hmm. The wheel of history is turning, wouldn't you say? I would say that. And you know, there is, for me, the big preliminary in discussing
0: this whole issue is and you can say that this is me being a linguist, but frankly, I think anybody could think this up. We have to stop talking in euphemisms because the way this is all discussed, and it's really and hard for me to listen to over the past 10 days, days—is this idea that people take race into account. That little phrase. And what that's supposed to mean is that everybody has equal qualifications in terms of grades and test scores. And then somebody decides, well, okay, we're going to split up the pie this way in order to have a representative population. Now, if that's all the taking race into account meant, then only the occasional martinetish idiot would have any problem with it. Everybody knows that's not what it is. Taking race into account is a polite, doily, anti-macassar, fig leaf euphemism for
1: black and Latino <laughs> students.
0: I don't know what that was. <laughs> that was and- a
1: wonderful, uh, you yeah. <laughs> know. String of
0: adjectives. (laughs) Those were the ones that came. But it is Black and Latino students are admitted with significantly lower, not just very slightly, but significantly, not catastrophically, but significantly lower grades and test scores than everybody else. That is what is meant by taking race into account. And so when I listen to everybody talking about all of this, I'm always thinking, suppose you had to sub in the real words. And people can think about all they want, but it's not taking race into account. It is what justifies lowering standards. And Glenn, some things do. But the question is whether that's the case in 2023 with all brown skinned people, as in brown being black and Latino and Native American, not South
1: Asian. That's a whole other thing. Well, your point is that uh, taking uh, into account doesn't tell me how much it's being taken into account. And in what way? And that that, and therein lies the whole ball game, I mean, for example, people talk about uh, legacies, they say, no more you know you got a legacy affirmative action, why not racial affirmative action, And I'm not here defending or attacking legacies. I'm just pointing out that unobserved in that uh, conversation is well, what extent is the differences between the marginal legacy admit and the marginal reject? Is it fifty points seventy five points? versus 200 points, 300 points, uh, which is what you're seeing on the racial uh, comparison. And that's a not small fact. That's a a significant fact. But I'm just in awe of the, you know, we had uh, the uh, Bakke case. uh, This is 1978. This is Justice Powell's controlling opinion. This is the establishment of an exception to the uh, colorblind implications of the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act of 1964, allowing for racial discrimination in the service of the compelling interest of pedagogic interest under the free speech and entitlements of the universities to have their orchestration of the mission of education diverse, diverse in terms of uh, racial identity. And that had been, uh, and it reaffirmed in 2003 in the Gretter University of Michigan uh, uh, case where uh, Sandra Day O'Connor observes 25 years from now, I hope we wouldn't be in this business and so on and so forth. I won't rehearse the whole thing. I'm just saying. We're we're 50 years down the line here in this fiercely contested thing. And when you read the opinions of Justice Roberts, the concurrence of Justice Thomas, the dissent of Justice Sotomayor, the concurring dissent of Justice Jackson. When you read these opinions, you you know, foundational issues are being engaged. I mean, uh, did the framers of the 14th Amendment genuinely intend to impose a colorblind constraint on state action for which the exception of affirmative action is no longer justified? That, and that's what the court ruled. And, uh, I'm wondering how you what you were telling me, I'm sorry to go on so long John, that you were uh debating this question at the Monk Debates uh, forum and and I wonder how smart legal minds uh on the um pro affirmative action side of this case are parsing it and and what they're doing uh with you know these very strongly worded statements coming from the conservative majority about uh the uh, the inappropriateness of a social agenda of race egalitarianism overriding the entitlement of people not to be discriminated against because of their race. Yeah,
0: I think the going idea
1: is that there are times when that kind of colorblindness is
0: to be suspended in acknowledgement of the profound stain of injustice that's been enacted especially upon Black people in the United States. And from for example a, a monk debate that I did I think I it was with Randall Kennedy the, the Harvard law professor black harvard law professor our I our respect very much the idea was that even being a middle class or an affluent black person today means that you suffer certain disadvantages certainly not in the way that you would have 50 years ago but they're still there and that those disadvantages that you suffer in terms of Attitudes that might be held against you, overtly or not overtly, in terms of the fact that you might be middle class in terms of income, but you don't have the accumulated wealth, in terms of the fact that you may be middle class, but technically in your neighborhood, there are a certain number of bad apples, et cetera, that there might not be in the white neighborhood in the TV show Stranger Things, that sort of thing. So the idea is that being middle class and black or affluent and black still is enough of a disadvantage that standards should be changed. And Randy was fine with the idea that we talk about what it actually is. He said that we're not at the point where standards don't need to be changed. I, quite honestly, just disagree. I I think that standards need to be changed under conditions starker than those, especially given the endless dissonance that racial preferences, as in lowering standards, will always create, especially after 1965 in the Immigration Act. It's no longer a matter of this and opposition between white people and black people. Since 1965, so many people have come from Asia. So many people have come from Africa. So many people have come from the Caribbean, but especially the Asian case at this point, that we need a whole new calculus because to dismiss all of these Asian American parents and their children as naive or racists for not liking that their best might not even get them into Harvard, whereas a black or a Latino person doing very good definitely gets into Harvard. It's reasonable to have a problem with that on the basis of what goes on with your own kid. And those kinds of lawsuits, that kind of dissonance was never going to stop.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this Uh So I'm thinking of the stereotyping point. As I recall, uh, the structure of Justice Roberts' uh, opinion where he finds against uh, Harvard and the University of North Carolina uh, and finds that racial affirmative action as practiced there violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. This cannot be overemphasized. This is very important. The structure of the argument there is... (sighs) It's being undertaken on behalf of objectives that are virtually immeasurable and unverifiable. You tell me diversity promotes the pedagogic mission of the university, but you can't really show me how. You make various assertions about university preparing a diverse leadership for the future of the country, but the links between what you're doing at the admissions office and the achievement of those goals is tenuous. Uh, it's, It's hard to see. So how can this be narrowly tailored to meet a compelling interest when it's uh, virtually impossible for judicial review to ascertain whether or not those objectives are being met? You know, this kind of thing. Uh, I thought that was, you know, a a, a very sort of central point. Uh, He says the court's only allowing affirmative action if it's uh, use of race uh, in uh, this kind of uh, decision. If it's not used as a negative against any racial group. And how can you say it's not being used as a negative against Asians? Admissions is a zero-sum activity. If you let in some on a special dispensation, there are others who are not going to be let in in virtue of that special dispensation. And manifestly, that's the case of Asians. He actually has a table, in his opinion, that's taken right out of Peter Arcidiakono's brief, which stratifies the different levels of academic qualification and compares the admissions rates across the racial groups. And it's absolutely devastating. So Asians are being discriminated against, and this is ironic, right, that this is a non-white group that are alleging injury on behalf of a program that is supposed to be undertaken to benefit non-whites. And you have to now parse. You have to parse between an African-American from a family with two college graduates and professional lives living in a leafy suburb somewhere who happens to be African-American, and an Asian-American applicant from a possibly two-bedroom apartment somewhere in a in a tenement that's uh, scraping out a, a bare living, but the kid has somehow managed to ace the test. And to use the Blackness and Asianness as the defining characteristics of those two people in my hypothetical, and, and argue in favor of the one of, of, over the other based on the Blackness or the Asianness of them, is stereotyping. It's not any longer an individual assessment is taking people as if they were avatars of some abstract category and then chopping their rights up based upon that. And this is this is gut-level stuff. This is very, very basic stuff. So what is Randy Kennedy's retort to, uh, this is the second prong of Justice Roberts' four-point uh, rejection of affirmative action, the first prong, being it's on behalf of indefinite objections, but the second problem being that it's necessarily injurious to some people on basis of their race. How does he get around the fact that that would appear on its face to be a violation of the 14th Amendment? Well, in
0: um, our discussion, it didn't happen to come around to that specific prong. I'm sure that he has a coherent answer. But obviously, what you're saying is simply true. You didn't just express an opinion. You just expressed a truth. And anybody who's following these issues knows it. And yet, What people do is they they always put their hand back behind their neck and look off into the distance. And they'll (laughs) say something like, well, the thing is, we've got to bring black people into opportunity. And if you don't go to Yale or Harvard, then apparently you don't have any access to opportunity. I've been seeing so many op-ed pages saying variations on that. And it comes out of something very simple, which the person going like this knows very well. There are so many schools. Let's go to... SUNY purchase let's go to any one of the cal states let's go to one of those one of those universities that has Wesleyan in its name in the Midwest. <laughs> could you say to the staff there working their butts off to get their seniors into jobs as lucrative and promising as possible? all the people who are there trying to shunt their graduates into being productive and successful members of society? could you say to them you know it's too bad that it doesn't work here. You're at UC Santa Cruz and, you know, all these black and Latino students are cut off from opportunity. It's too bad they didn't get to go to Rice or Stanford or Yale. Everybody knows that's a ridiculous cartoon. Is it really true? And folks, for the comments section, yes, Archidiacono et al. have been answered by the economist Zachary Bleemer. And Zachary Bleemer's <laughs> work has gotten around as if it kind of deep to Archie Diakono. No, folks. And I'm sorry, we don't have time to read everything. I certainly don't. But read Bleemer. Read both of his papers. There, there's a second one. It doesn't do anything different than the first one in that the fact is this. The takeaway is this, after you look at all the, the tables. Did Prop 209, which ended racial preferences in California in the late 90s, lower the income of Black and Latino people who are now, believe it or I can't believe it's been this long, they're now grown-ups married with children. Did it lower their incomes? Latinos, yes, somewhat. Although, of course, a little something called 2008 might have had something to do with it. But (laughs) Black incomes were not lowered. The media wasn't interested in that. Prop 209, if you have any way of drawing some sort of link. Between Prop 209 and people's earnings 30 years later. I'm not sure I quite understood that. And I'm not sure it's because I'm not an economist. But if you do, <laughs> then frankly, black people stayed the same. So put your hand behind your neck and do that thing where you look over my shoulder. Those are the facts. And so, what all, all right, of I this I just got to
1: say this as, as the economist in our bunch, I'm very impressed, John. I'm very impressed you're down in the weeds, man. Gleamer is, as, as I understand it, a the graduate student of David Cards at Berkeley. And he's done this study of the impact of Proposition 209. It's a carefully quantitative investigation. And it's being held up as a defense of uh, affirmative action. And, but, but John is on top of it. He's got two papers, not just one. Carr, by the way, read. was the expert witness for Harvard in the litigation, who was the opposite number to Peter Arsidiakono in that whole, uh, in that whole uh, contestation. But yeah. Uh, the, the paper has been oversold. This is Bleamer, uh work has, has been oversold by, by some of the defendants. Glenn, I, didn't, I, should, uh, but I just like quick, it.
0: quick interruption. I didn't know he was a grad student. I didn't know that he was that young. And so now I'm feeling like I was talking too high and mighty. But frankly, it, it was oversold as making that point.
1: Yeah, go ahead. I'm sure he's an assistant professor somewhere by now and that this project has been going on for years and it developed out of his, uh, out of his dissertation. This kind of thing. But... Uh, I want to come back to this point about how going to uh, State University of New York and Purchase, if that's the uh, campus that you were referring to, is not exactly a death sentence. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Vers- versus to going to Cornell or something like that. It's not, it's not exactly the end of the world. No. And the elitism, and, and this comes through, and Justice Thomas does allow himself a little bit of uh, bitterness and, and a kind of sarcasm in, in some quarters of his report. I mean, for example, this is an aside to my main point about elitism, but I'll just say this. Thomas goes out of his way to point out that Harvard discriminated against Jews back in the day and that the University of North Carolina, the other defendant in this case, was an openly segregationist campus until you know the Jim Crow era got brought down. And he says, these are discriminators. Why should we trust them? They're, at, they're basically, they're asking to trust us and say, look, we got this. We're creating a cadre of American leaders and we're going to make it diverse and everything's going to be fine. Trust us. And, it's, and Thomas is saying, like, why should we trust them? <laughs> this court has a long history of not trusting discriminators. I think he cites a bunch of cases all down the line, man. I mean, Tom, yeah, I going to... Uh-huh. People are going to get mad at Clarence Thomas. It, I'm just going to say this. And y'all can get mad at me if you want to. I found his opinion to be magisterial. Uh, I found the depth that he went into in expositing the, uh, the uh, legislative history of the 14th Amendment was comprehensive and, you know, it was historian-like in terms of the level of detail and completeness. And the argument that what the framers intended was at, that it be a non-discrimination not an equalizing mandate, a mandate that restricts the state from disc- using race to discriminating people. Not an instrument to re- mitigate and rectify the consequences of historical exigency. I, I found that argument to be quite compelling. But on this elite on this elitism thing, it, people don't see the irony in this. Affirmative action is actually parasitic on inequality. In, in other words, it says. In order to get a good job, you have to go to Harvard or Berkeley uh, or Rice or or someplace which is a very exclusive place that has 30,000 applications for 2,000 seats. In in, in order to really make it in America, they they pat themselves on the back. We're creating the elite. They presuppose that their portal is the only portal that you can pass through to get into the, the, the elite. Now, and then they say, but therefore we have to be racially diverse. But we are also very, very specialized in selective and elite. And hence, the only way to do that, given the fact that there are racial disparities in the distribution of performance, is to use different standards by race. That is to say, to violate the 14th Amendment. Now, they don't have to be so elite, or perhaps I should say we don't have to be so elite. The... the idea that a black student who couldn't get into a ultra-selective university and has to settle for a, a lower-ranked university has been deprived of an opportunity presupposes. I mean, everybody at the lower-ranked university on that argument is being deprived of an opportunity, not just the black student. Did you ever stop to try to justify the difference in opportunity between the one who went to the top-ranked place and the one who went to the medium-ranked medium place in the first place? No, and the leftists should catch on to this. No, you were too busy counting beans by race to take note of the actual structure of inequality in the society, which was not racial uh, at all.
0: So You know, it's um, that's all true. What people are doing is reciting lines. That thing where you put your hand behind your neck and you talk about opportunity. You're training yourself not to think too hard about the truth that you just said. It's, it's like, um, what is it? In A Partridge and a Pear Tree, The Christmas Carol, Um, is it four four calling birds, three French hens, two turtle doves, right? Two turtle four, doves four and calling birds. What's a calling yeah. bird? You ever thought about that? We all learned to say it. What, what's a calling bird? Who would write the lyric that way? It was actually a particular kind of bird. They were called collie birds. And it got changed to calling bird because nobody knew what a collie bird was. So you just say four <laughs> calling birds. You just recite it. That's what this thing is about opportunity. You say, well, we have to create the elite. As if the elite only comes from 36 schools, everybody knows it doesn't work. And the sad thing, Glenn, is that what I see in it is a kind of racism if people aren't black, or if people are black, a certain sense that our identity is something separate from that of whiteness and that therefore there are certain things that we should not be expected to do. I think what people really think is that middle-class black kids should not be expected to perform at that level, that it's immoral to look at that brown face And say, you have to do as well as that Jewish kid from Scarsdale, as that Chinese-American kid from Scarsdale, and that South Asian kid from Queens. You have to do as well as them. The past is the past. The present isn't perfect. But you, if you did not grow up disadvantaged, you have to do as well as everybody else. And I can tell that a certain kind of white person, roughly the kind who reads the New York Times and, and listens to NPR, is very uncomfortable espousing that. Like when people talk to me about what I'm thinking, what I hear often is, yeah, I get it, but there are certain things I disagree with. And what they disagree with is they can't imagine looking that middle-class black kid in the eye and saying, okay, affirmative action is over for you. And they're especially uncomfortable with the fact that, yes, at first, the numbers of us would go down, as they did at the UC schools, and then went back up. But yes, there were some times when there weren't as many black kids on campus. I was there for the last 10 minutes of that when I taught at UC Berkeley. And you know, none of those kids wound up dead. None of those kids wound up in jail. They went to UC Santa Cruz and UC San Diego and by and large did very well. And here we are. The world kept spinning and black incomes did not go down in California. But I think a lot of people are trained to think that to imagine that those numbers would go down and to say to a middle-class black kid, we're not going to give you set-asides anymore. You have to do as well as everybody else. Makes them bad people. And Glenn, I can imagine feeling that way if I were white too, given what we're steeped in. But it's at the point where that sense of guilt that those people feel at expecting the best of me or my children is obsolete. It was time for it to go. And this decision is going to make it harder to work on the basis of that unintentional essentialism that I think is part of this whole thing.
1: So you talk about how the observer, the well-meaning white supporter of affirmative action, may be selling short middle-class blacks by, in effect, assuming, presuming that they can't be expected to achieve the same degree of excellence. And what I'm thinking about is the other side of that equation. What about the middle-class what about black middle class society itself, suburban Atlanta, suburban Houston, suburban uh, Chicago, Philadelphia, uh, the children of all the people, some of whom are beneficiaries themselves of affirmative action in a time past, who have penetrated into the upper middle and upper echelons of American society, of the economy, corporate sector, of the entertainment sector, and, and, on, and on and on? What about them? Does affirmative action, the need for it, the wailing and moaning about how the numbers will go down, implicitly indict them for not living up to the potential of their middle class (laughs) ness Does it expose their failure? You know? Um, I mean, let me just finish this thought, John, if Uh if you don't mind. Because... The implicit argument is, like you said, you said it explicitly. You said, okay, he's middle class, he's black, but he's still black. The black experience is carrying a weight. He lived in a neighborhood where there were poor black people that were close by, or he bears the scars, et cetera, et cetera. And excuse me for daring to notice that this sounds awful lot like belly aching in an excuse. You know, an excuse for the failure in the face of a challenge to produce the cadres from our most uh, well-endowed and fortunate number to actually perform. Uh, And this crutch of affirmative action is now taken away, exposing the underperformance in in a radical way. And that's got to be terrifying to people. I'm talking about Black people. I'm talking about the people who are going to want to call the Supreme Court rolling back the clock on our progress being terrified by the existential challenge that this decision confronts them with there is no fig leaf here you are in America the doors are open we're judging people on their merits your numbers are going down that's kind of on you bro it's hard
0: and it's um it's unpleasant, but it's honest and it's logical. And, you know, I want to do a quick reminder here, folks. We're we're not talking about taking race into account. We're talking about do you lower standards? And if anybody's saying, but standards aren't lowered, you're lying. What we're talking about is lesser grades and lesser test scores, not abysmal, but significantly lesser, being allowed as admissions criteria for black and Latino students as opposed to others. That's been soundly proven all over the country for decades. There's no question about it. That's what we're talking about. Not something as abstract as taking race into account. And the issue is, you know, how long do you do this? And, you know, I have to, I, I have to be the old guy shouting from his backyard. I've seen this because I happened to be at UC in the late 90s and I listened to all of these earnest people getting up and talking about resegregation, getting up and making it sound like most black kids at UC Berkeley in 1995 were poor when all but none of them were anything like it, and I checked. It wasn't (laughs) what they were saying. And so many people were saying things like that black, I remember one one person verbatim, um, somebody got up and said to a cheering audience, few black students have access to adequate education. What's few? what are you talking about? What are the figures? Is it really that bad? Is it really 1910? But of course, everybody's clapping because this person is supposedly saying the right thing. And really, all of that apocalyptic rhetoric that I saw, I saw so much of it in 95, 6, and 7, was, was, was useless. And it was inappropriate because that's not what happened. Laced all throughout all of this soapbox rhetoric, was an implication that UC Berkeley itself was a racist institution that was on some level, in some way, somewhere within the warp and woof, the suits were in favor of excluding black people. The idea was that UC made, needed to make black people feel welcome, as in admit black people with lower test scores and grades than others. That's what the welcome euphemism means. And it didn't happen. Now, UC has pretty much made up for the drops that there were then through strategies that are not about just saying you're brown, you get in. They tried to pull that through the back door for a few years afterward and they got called on it. And so it can happen. And so if UC did it, then why in the world are we talking now as if this decision is going to take us back to 1960 when college campuses in the United States are probably the least racist in any sense spaces on the planet Earth in the history of Homo sapiens, which extends 300,000 years back. Why are we saying that? It's kabuki. Everybody is doing a kind of performance, and
1: it's time for it to stop. It's really important to get life insurance. If you have a family like I do, you know how much your loved ones depend upon you. In a worst-case scenario, you wouldn't want to have to worry about them having enough money. A good life insurance plan can give you peace of mind that if something were to happen to you, your family will have a safety net to cover mortgage payments and college costs and other expenses so that they can get back on their feet and focus on what's most important. Perhaps you already have coverage through work. You should know that employer-sponsored life insurance may not offer enough protection for your family, and it won't follow you if you leave your job. I can tell you from personal experience as a man in his 70s who remarried after his former wife passed away to a younger woman, that it's super satisfying to check life insurance off of my to-do list. And getting covered can be even more satisfying When you use Policy Genius, Policy Genius was built to modernize the life insurance industry. Their technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $25 a month for as much as a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer coverage in as little as a week and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius has licensed agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another so you can trust their guidance. Policy Genius is for parents, for caregivers, and anyone else who has people who depend upon them. They simplify the process of getting life insurance so that you can protect the people you love. There are no added fees and your personal details are private. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. Your loved ones deserve a financial safety net. You deserve a smarter way to find and buy it. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and to see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Well, good luck with that. I mean, performance seems to be the the order of the day and and not just on this issue, on, on a lot of issues. Isn't that how race is getting enacted in, in American po- political culture through performance. Yeah, it is. So,
0: and it really... Editors, please. I'm getting so many texts in a row that I'm worried something's wrong with somebody. Hold on.
1: Okay, we'll just edit this out. Real brief. Yeah. Great. All right. Good. Well, I, I have a number of thoughts. I, I Let me... Uh, Clarence Thomas voted uh, with the majority, of course. <laughs> he benefited from affirmative action himself. So did you, John. So did I. How dare he slash we pull up the ladder after ourselves, et cetera. Ad nauseum. Your rebuttal. <laughs>
0: that is what, you know, it's funny. I haven't heard as much of that as I was expecting, but it's, it's yeah. frequent. Frequent response. And there are two quick ones. One is that if earlier in your life you didn't see the problem with something and then you come to see that problem later, the idea that you have no right to open your mouth if you benefited based on how you're feeling as a more mature and experienced person, that you can't open your mouth because that ladder was there for you when you might be thinking that the ladder shouldn't have been there. That is muzzling. That's, at best, a debate team trick. It has nothing to do with any kind of justice. And I also think that people misunderstand, and genuinely misunderstand. You don't apply for affirmative action. It's not like you go online and you fill out a form asking to be processed that way. In the (laughs) time that we've been around, it's just the way you're seen. You can't avoid it, frankly. And I can definitely say that in my situation, when I was you know, 15 and then even 22, I was a hobbyist. I was doing a lot of theater. I was doing all sorts of things. I, these issues didn't really come to my mind strongly until I started teaching at Berkeley and watching so many people walking around lying. It offended me. But I wasn't really thinking about it that much. And so, yeah. I can definitely chart where affirmative action affected my pathway. I spell it out explicitly in one, my book, "Losing the Race," and two, the piece that I wrote in the New York Times recently about my own experiences as subject to racial preferences. Yeah, they were there. But I honestly believe that at that late point, for me, all of this is around, you know, the 1988 and then 1993. It was obsolete then, and there's no way you're going to tell me that I'm not allowed to say it, and if anybody thinks. That if I say it, I therefore should resign my job at Columbia and not write for the Times. And I guess I'm supposed to go wash cars or something. Well, again, once again, that's a performative thing to ask of somebody. And so I insist on having my say. And I'm not pulling in ladders. I'm just saying that the ladder should be about people who are disadvantaged, which anybody who has this objection is thinking is the same thing as being black. Well, that was true in 1966, sort of. But things have changed. What kind of ladder?
1: Does that makes sense. Well, the worst. Yeah, it makes the. I I uh, confirm. I agree with everything you just got be saying, but I would add. I mean, it's the worst kind of ad hominem. L- listen to what they say. You're pulling up the ladder after you. That's a, that's an explicit statement about your motive. Mm-hmm. You're trying to deprive people of. You know, for, it it presupposes a certain presumption of loyalty. You're black. They're black you know, you, you're kind of supposed, you, you should be in solidarity with them, but instead you air to yourself this position of opposing the very means that they would, you know, et cetera. Uh, it, it doesn't say a person could change their mind. It, it it doesn't allow for the fact that circumstances might be different 50 years on. Uh, it's it's a, a, re- playing with words. It's a kind of rhetorical trick. It, it's an effort to uh, guilt trip a person without making an argument. You, you, you don't even bother to rebut their argument. You go straight to what kind of person they are and attempt to discredit them on the basis of them being hip, uh, hypocrites. It, so, you know, it's a cheap shot. It's, it's just a very, very cheap shot, whether it's level to Justice Thomas or you or me or anybody else. You know what else? It there's is? another question. Yeah. Oh, go, ahead. go ahead, John. Lazy.
0: No. Because what it is, it's, it's, lazy. A, car- it's a cartoon. It's this person who thinks, oh, yeah, I'm going to get mine. I'm going to climb up this ladder. Now I'm going to pull this ladder in. Fuck all you down there. Who is that? What person like that would get married? What person like that would have any friends or be able to sleep at night? It's a cartoon character. (laughs) Lazy,
1: lazy caricature.
0: That's all I had to say about that.
1: Okay, I want to give some attention to the dissent, uh, the dissenting opinions, and simply say that a bottom line on it, you can embellish this if you like, John, is it's not a colorblind society. You just are held for colorblindness. That's completely disconnected from reality. It's not a colorblind society. Race is still very significant in determining life chances in this country. So how dare you... uh, uh, what does uh, Justice Jackson say? It's a "let them eat cake" mentality. Uh, you know, uh, you 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 discern this abstract idea in the Fourteenth Amendment of colorblindness, and then you overlay that to—I don't know if this is what Randy said in the month debate with you. I can imagine him possibly saying something like this. And then you uh, overlay overlay that against the uh, actual social circumstance in which race is insinuated into every nook and cranny of of, of social life, determining opportunities for people. And you declare the Constitution colorblind. What's up with that?
0: (laughs) And, you know, the answer to that is, yes, race determines outcomes. But the question is, do you lower grades and test scores, Judge Jackson, with all due respect? And she is good. She's she's doing her job in a way that Amy Coney Barrett, I hear, is not doing as much or as well. But I haven't heard that. Do okay. you do you lower grades and test scores? Not just take race into account. Do you do that when your applicant is somebody who has been affected much less by that kind of racist inequity than many other Black people have? Do you treat all Black people the same way in that regard? because of the remnants, or even you don't want to call it remnants, the indications of racist inequity in society? That's a genuine question. And so, yes, race does still determine things. And so that might mean that you give more support, including changing standards, to disadvantaged black people. Let me phrase that very precisely. Of the people who you give affirmative action to based on disadvantage, maybe proportionately more of them will be black than one might expect in terms of our representation in the population, that's fine. That takes race into account. But to take one of the Cosby kids, so to speak, I guess we're not supposed to use that example anymore because of Cosby's right. adventures, but kids everybody didn't knows do anything whatever what <laughs> he did. but yeah, the, the TV show. And so we're supposed to give affirmative action to those kids. All of those kids on the show, for those of you who are old enough to remember, all of them going to college, none of them were assessed on their merits. all of them. Despite, you know, that house they grew up in in Brooklyn Heights, et cetera, all of them were assessed in very considerable part on the fact that their brown faces would add to the diversity tableau of the schools that they went to. If we're going to think about how this sort of thing was really going in the in the high 80s and 90s. And so, no, saying that racism still exists and that societal racism, as they call it, exists is not a self-standing argument for changing standards for all black and Latino faces. And I think on some level, if you were going to have a conversation with Justice Jackson, she'd understand that. But what interests me is that people of her mind wouldn't put it on paper. They seem to think that it's somehow irrelevant, as if there are only three middle-class black kids. But surely, for example, she knows that's not true. I'm perplexed by that. Just perplexed.
1: I have a slightly different take, not disagreeing with you, but. Just wanted to put the emphasis in a different place, which is there's a non-secretary involved. You say society is not colorblind. Okay, well, that's pretty clear. That's self-evident, and no one has claimed to the contrary. What we're talking about is the Constitution, not about society. We're talking about the United States Constitution. The Constitution is the compact under which we govern ourselves. It's the law. Now, the society is dynamic. It's not a colorblind society. It's also not a static society. To wit, as you have emphasized, 1965 immigration, liberalization, tens of millions of non-European foreign-born persons coming and making their lives here and their children, uh, they're now a very significant part of of the social landscape. The law is the compact under which we are all going to be governed. So the claim that the Constitution is colorblind, that is to say that you know, on its interpretation, the one that we're offering, the ones who are, when I say we, the ones who are uh, with the majority in this case, uh, is a claim about how we're going to interpret the framing documents of the country, not a claim about social outcomes. And there is a burden that hasn't been borne by, uh, with respect, Justice Jackson uh, and Justice Sotomayor which is a demonstration of the necessity of altering the the uh, governing framework under which we in a multiracial society are supposed to live on behalf of putative or alleged uh, equalizing social effects. I mean, uh, they didn't bear that burden at all as far as I could see. I, I saw very little talk about why the Constitution's Uh, interpretation that was being offered by the majority was erroneous, very little citation. I'm not a lawyer. I'll I'll say that. But I did read these opinions carefully of the case law and the uh, ruling uh, constitutional precedents on behalf of that position. Because, in fact, in Bakke, Justice Powell's controlling opinion explicitly rejects the sociological, you had historical discrimination and therefore you need to do this in order to make up for and rectify. He rejected that. That's how you get to diversity. They considered and rejected the uh, constitutional interpretation that would seem to be implied by uh, the dissents. So, that. yeah,
0: I mean, that was frayed as early as 78. Yeah, and that's where you get the diversity argument, which has always been utterly hopeless in terms of anything that actually makes sense from A to B, including that, Diverse kids don't like their diverseness being called upon in classrooms. You read one op-ed after another with that. I have heard countless diverse kids say it, and I felt it. You don't want to have to have the whole class looking at you when slavery comes up or the police come up. And if kids don't want to represent their diverseness in class, and the whole idea that diverseness is key to an education falls apart about 70% right there. Then there are a whole lot of other studies of it. All of this has always been um, a house of cards. And the minute you threaten any of those bottom cards, you're told that you are in bed with the people who supported Plessy versus Ferguson. And that simply isn't true. And there's one thing I want to add to all of this. Um, Do a quick parable. I remember when I was at Stanford and I was um, was TAing a class and there was a white student. And there was a, a paper that was assigned at the end of the class where you were supposed to do a kind of analysis. You were supposed to address an issue nothing rocket science, but you were supposed to address an issue. I'm not going to be specific about the class or anything else because just maybe this person would see themselves depicted and they don't deserve it. But it was a class where there was an essay at the end. And there was this one student who I was, you know, helping with this. And, you know, we batted around the idea that they would analyze this phenomenon, this tendency, this claim, etc. But somehow it never quite happened. And what this student handed in was a book report, a book report biography of one person where all they had to do was go get a particular book. I even knew what book it was and paraphrase from the book. And that was not typical of Stanford undergrads. That's not what they're like. The year is 1990. I was impressed when I was a grad student there. I was thinking, boy, these kids are all so smart. And it's not that this person wasn't smart in ways, but it was like, hmm. That was the first time I'd experienced a Stanford student who would do that. Turned out, I got to know the person a little better over, you know, the next few months. That person was a legacy student. That person's father and grandfather had gone to Stanford. And <laughs> I'm afraid that that was the reason that they, they were there. That was about the most they, they could do. So as far as this issue of if they're legacy students, then how come they can't be taking race into account? I find the comparison insulting. There shouldn't be legacy students either. Or if there's some reason that there should be, and there are some arguments along those lines, to compare black and Latino admits with them and say, if that's okay, then why not us? Talk about self-hating. That is one of the most self-hating arguments I have ever heard from a person with a certain amount of melanin in their skin. Alien to a Chinese American, to an Indian American. That's a terrible argument, that if it's okay for the legacy students... It's okay for us. No, no, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, I, I, well, I'm going to say this. I, I I, think it's a, a canard. I, I think it's a red herring, frankly. Um, I actually think universities have a are, are right to cultivate a, a within family, cross-generational ties and loyalties on behalf of building the solidarity of their networks of support and so forth because they're, they're philanthropies. Uh, they're, they're a kind of club. I mean, the Constitution prohibits racial discrimination. It doesn't prohibit uh, censoring who comes into my club based upon uh, whether or not I think that they will further the club's objectives. Race and legacy status are not anywhere close to being on the same Uh, status in in terms of the the basis of discrimination. I know that that would be an unpopular argument, but I think I don't see how it's not correct as a matter of logic. Um, So I think that now, Roland Fryer, uh, the estimable Roland Fryer, former student of mine, professor of economics at Harvard, well-known commentator and analyst, had a piece in the New York Times. Did you see it? No, I didn't. Oh, man. Well, you should check it out a couple of three days ago, and we don't have to talk about it. I'll just say what he said, and if you want to move on, we can. Um, he said, okay, what's to, what are we to do now? Harvard and Ivy League. He said, uh, well, here, I'll put something to you. How about establishing a network of special educational academies, like, you know, exam schools in the big cities around the country. Let's say a hundred of, of these schools scattered through big cities with large Black and Latino populations throughout the uh, country intended to cultivate potential entrance into your inner sanctum. You take them right at ninth grade and you teach them from ninth grade on and it's intensive and it's, you know, you got to take an exam to get in and whatever funded out of the endowments of these institutions. And he calculates, he does a back of the envelope calculation. He says that a collective endowment of the IVs is like $80 billion. And, you know, he does a per student cost. And he turns out that it's a trivial sum within the framework of their total resources that they could be able to do this. <laughs> he said, there's only one reason that there are two reasons that you wouldn't do this. One, you don't have the money. And I just showed that that was wrong. But the other one is you don't actually believe that there are kids out there that cannot meet your standards but I know you wouldn't want to admit to that in public. So let me embarrass you by mm. saying, I dare you. I dare you to do this. <laughs> I've got to read that. I, I, yeah, I thought that that was just wonderful. I, I thought it was wonderful. He says, don't lower your standards. Bet on these kids. Bet your mo- Put your money where your mouth is. I think that phrase is actually in the article. Put your money where your mouth is. Stop putting your hand behind your neck and looking over a roll and shoulder. Exactly. Exactly. He cites his own research to show that the, the Harlem Children's Zone Charter School uh, of, uh, efficacy uh, had been demonstrated to you know a certain degree in terms of his quantitative estimates. And he has his research in Houston where he's also done some education reform experiments showing that adopting a relatively sensible longer school day, longer school year, uh, intensive tutoring, high expectations, uh, strict quality governance over teachers and principals can be shown to practically closed the racial achievement gap in a couple of years based on data that he's analyzed, this kind of thing. So he's not talking through his hat. He, he's, he's saying, we know how to do this. And here's the unspoken thing that the first thing I thought, I, I wondered what Randy Weingarten, uh, who runs the uh, teachers union out there, uh, uh, or the National Education Association, I think she's the American Federation of Teachers, the National Education Association would say about it, because he's daring Harvard, Princeton, Dartmouth, Brown, Cornell, Yale, to start dozens of, in effect, high-end, elite-focused charter schools right in the middle of Philadelphia, right, right in the middle of the Bronx. You know, on the south side of Chicago, and you know what the teachers' unions would do? They they scream bloody murder. Mm-hmm. Elitism, cream skimming, so forth and so on. So <laughs> the main obstacle is not just the recalcitrance of the Ivies to Roland's uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I, I think, you know, it's a serious idea. You know uh, what I
0: want to know is, you know, all those, those selective college administrators who are writing op-eds and reading op-eds, why is it that they would find Roland's piece there less interesting? And one more piece written by one more professor somewhere talking about how this decision blocks Black people from opportunity and that we must, quote-unquote, take race into account. Why is that latter editorial more interesting? You really do wonder sometimes how interested people are in doing what they say they're interested in. Are people interested in optics? Or are they interested in actually forging change in society? And I hate to say that a lot of those people in their suits are more interested in just getting short-term optical work done rather than actually making a change in society. And I hate to say that sounds kind of self-centered. They're doing that for their own careers because then they get to be some dean at some other school, something like that. I'm, I'm disappointed in those people, very disappointed in, in people like that because Roland is doing real thinking. And look what happened to him. <laughs> He's doing real thinking. And everybody else is just writing these sententious tracts of liturgy about taking race into account and opportunity. I'm very disappointed. Very.
1: Are you disappointed in this conservative court? I've heard you say not nice things no. about the conservative court. It's too oh. conservative for you. But here they are. So, I, you know, they're not all bad. But they you got this, a little
0: bit of credit. They got this one right. And I hate having to you know, C. Kagan and Sotomayor and and Jackson and disagreeing with what I'm sure are very good faith opinions of theirs about what a catastrophe this is. And far be it from me to question anything that people who are operating on that mental level do, but I can't help but see that all three of those people are not looking outside of the box. There are certain ways of thinking that they're very conditioned to embracing for various reasons. It's interesting what all three of them are in terms of demographics. I don't think they're seeing these issues fully. What a, who am I going to take that back? I think they're not looking out of the box because this issue is so powerful, so controversial and often so personal. And I'm sorry, but okay. Well, another thing, Glenn, is the answer is not simply don't take race into account because we must be colorblind. You have to explain where you're coming from on that. Anybody who just says we must be colorblind as if we're talking about some 1950 textbook. No, that's too simplistic. Why why must we be colorblind when we weren't doing it before? Was it always wrong not to be colorblind, et cetera? I don't want to go too far with that. But the idea that this decision is wrong, I find it limited. It's limited. But that's just me.
1: I think we're at the beginning of something, actually. I think affirmative action is one thing, but I think the larger question, I mean, the reparations debate, for example, what do you think this court based on, and again, I'll say I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but I I just don't see how you can read the opinions here in the um, Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard and UNC cases. And imagine that this court would uphold a broad-based program of wealth redistribution based upon race, Justified by uh, the uh, history of slavery and Jim Crow segregation and redlining and all of that, I, I it just, never worked, no.: Just doesn't see I don't know. you've got to classify your citizens based on their racial identity, and then they're standing at law in terms of eligibility for the receipt of certain government-sponsored payments that are funded by tax dollars is uh, determined by their racial identity. I, I just don't see it.
0: I, I, th- you know. The same six people would, would knock that down in a second. Um, I think reparations is going to have to be <laughs> a thousand points of light because, yeah, a decision like they would never work. No, the Supremes, as currently configured, would be quite unsympathetic to
1: that. So the wheel is turning. I mean, this is not Brown 1954. That it, It's not nearly so momentous as the uh, rejection of the Plessy versus Ferguson 1896, separate but equal, is consistent with the 14th Amendment claimed that which was what brown did it's this is not that but it's up there it's up there in that same ballpark uh and uh i don't know if it's not a foreshadowing of a broader shift in this in the nation's sensibility around these racial issues it might be hard to see now as we live in the aftermath of black lives matter in the summer of 2020 and racial reckoning and critical race theory and all of that you know, Ron DeSantis, whom I know you don't like, is in bad order because he's, you know, don't say gay and he's trying to roll back CRT and and whatever, whatever. But I, I just wonder, you know, the 1619 project. I mean, that that the the uh curriculum battles over how to tell the story about the history of the country, uh and the and the upper hand that the anti-racist people, the uh D'Angelo's and Kindies of the World and others seem to have held and that the, it may be that we're seeing that kind of uh sentiment progressively wane. You know, it, it may be that the, the the pendulum is shifting here a little bit. Again, I, I think the fact that these were Asian plaintiffs, that they were non-white plaintiffs, there's no way you can't say that the the Japanese we're not in tiered in uh, the Second World War. There's no way you can't say the Chinese Exclusion Act that was explicitly discriminatory and anti-Asian and its sentiment didn't happen because it did happen. Um, and so on and so forth. Asians are, in fact, victims of hate crimes in some cities where disproportionately, the perpetrators are not whites and they're not Asians. They're blacks. That's actually a fact about our actual subset. There's 7% of the population now as opposed to 2 or 3% a half century ago and the numbers are only going to go up. Have you noticed what the 21st century looked like? There's 2 billion people in India and there's a billion and a half people in China and they're at the cutting edge of the dynamism in the global economy and in the global culture. Uh, so um, this thing which is a product of America's racial history of slavery and which is a kind of bimodal bipolar black white framing where blacks have some kind of presumptive upper hand on the basis of their victimhood is not long for this world I hope
0: that you're correct because i think that you know the plane kind of bumps down to the tarmac and i think next is going to be that brown kids are taught well, black and Latino kids are taught to emphasize their race and how their race has done them wrong in their essays. That will get a whole lot of attention in the essays. And in the meantime, Asian kids have problems too, sometimes pretty severe ones. They're going to put that in their essays. And Edward Bloom or somebody else is going to come along in about seven years and notice that hardship for brown people, black and Latino people, it makes it much, much, much more likely for a black kid to get into Harvard or Yale than hardship from a, a an Asian or a South Asian person. And then we're going to be in this all over again. And so then when it turns out you can't do that, because I think the Supreme Court will strike that down to that, that there's going to be some case and it's going to be decided that that was discriminatory. Then you really have to get creative. And that's when I think we are, we're really going to enter a new era. Or maybe because of what happened at UC, where they tried that and got dinged for it. Maybe the Ivies won't go that route and rank problems of black people as more problematic than problems of a Chinese or a Korean American kid. Maybe they realize that that's not going to work either. So then maybe we could enter the new era right now. But my hopes are not high
1: for that. What I'm finding ironic here is you abandon the SAT and so you don't use tests to screen your kids. Instead, you invite a hardship Olympics. You, you you invite them to write to you and tell you about the barriers that they've overcome based upon their socioeconomic thing on the premise that blacks will be uh, effective competitors on that realm, uh, less so on the test score realm. But you just completely changed the nature of your institution when you did that. You, it, instead of it being selective based upon uh, uh, outstanding intellectual achievement, it's become s- selective based upon... Uh, a comparative assessment of the experiences of hardship uh, based upon up social exigency and that well, that doesn't seem like the way you want to run a university Mm-mm. it's not a daycare center it's its not a social work uh, platform it, it, it's supposed to be an uh, ac- uh, institution fostering intellectual excellence and cultivating the received wisdom of the ages I mean it's essentially an intellectual activity. But you get so rewarded for not
0: understanding the difference. For a lot of people with PhDs, they think that it is supposed to be social work. It is supposed to be daycare for for young adults. And that that is the heart of what education actually is, that you're being enlightened to the fact that such things are necessary. That's what worries me, that pretty soon all the people who think that way are 55 and are basically running the store. That worries me, but
1: maybe that's apocalyptic.
0: All
1: right. You uh, fans of The Glenn Show have been uh, seeing an hour-long disquisition. John, and I, reflecting on the meaning of this momentous Supreme Court decision on affirmative action. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks. Thanks, John. Thank you, Glenn.